president and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard. President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends each and every week on SiriusXM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research of Wisdom Tree, an ETF sponsor. And we joined for some market commentary here by my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. I should note that I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion today is not a recommendation for any trading strategies, nor tied to the offer of sale on investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree, its affiliates. Uh, another interesting week, a lot of political discussions. We had the testimony of, of FBI, former FBI Director James Comey. We had the British election results uh, overnight. Uh, Professor, the markets, uh, the volatility is just not there. We're looking at the markets basically exactly where we were last yeah. Friday when we talked to you. Um, what's what's your current... Six below 10 again. Yeah. Yeah. Well... All right, so uh, let's take a look. I mean, there was no smoking gun in Comey, Comey's testimony, um, which we actually knew the, the night before. Uh, I really don't think that changes the political game too much. This this market, and uh, except for Nasdaq, which uh, is, had a little sell-off after I think Goldman warned on some of these high flyers, is uh, hitting all-time highs, and it's hitting all-time highs on on really several factors. First of all, as we've mentioned all the time, uh, first quarter was the best earnings guidance and outlook that we've had in over three years. Uh, the dollar down uh, is definitely good for the multinationals. And the interest rates, uh, the 10 years, 221. It was even down to 212 before uh, a couple days ago. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, this is, this is a fantastic uh, environment for stock. Um, um, uh, let me say, uh, as I've always say, that, you know, whatever problems Trump is in, I do not think that derails tax reform, particularly corporate tax reform. Um, uh, and um, Larry Kudlow has been, you know, pushing the fact that he's talked to the Trump administration that they can actually do corporate tax reform by attaching it to the health care reform. Uh, now, the personal income tax reform is another thing. We, I still think we're going to get it. And uh, it could very well still be retroactive to 2017, even though we're halfway through it. So I, I don't consider anything that's gone on uh, with the Comey as, as you know, deadening uh, it's the Republicans who want corporate tax reform, and so does Trump. And, and, and they'll sign everything in. Now, to next week we have the FOMC. They will raise a quarter, but they've got to be concerned. They're missing their inflation targets, and instead of going up, down, PCE deflator is not 2%. In fact, the core is 1.5% and going down, and oil is going down. Uh, it was down to 45 yesterday. Um, uh, you know, they're, they're not reaching. There's going to be some concern about that. They're also flattening the curve uh, between the 90-day and the 10-year. And with the 10-year now at 212, and the 90-day at 1, and 
you know, obviously go up a few basis points when they raise it. Uh, I just was looking at a chart of it. it it's it's uh, except for a couple of months when the oil crashed, uh, it's the lowest in five years, that spread. And they do look at that spread. So there's going to be some concern. Um, they will vote it, and it'll probably be unanimous. But uh, when we, and we may not get it in the minute minutes, but when the minutes are released in three weeks, we may see that some are really concerned that we're not meeting that target, which still tells me that unless things change a lot, we only can get one more increase. They're going to skip September and probably do December, but it's too early. We've got a lot of things uh, that are going on uh, before then. Yeah, and on this, uh, so I saw Cudlow's writing this week saying to you know negotiate the the tax rates, which we all want him to to do. He thought that they can they they should just focus on the corporate side, the repatriation, uh, maybe like one other issue, and and forget the personal side and just mm-hmm. come back to the broader tax reform next year. Is that do you have yeah. a political bent on how you think they should try to move? Well, move this there's forward? a plus and minus. <laughs> he he said he said they all listen carefully and taking notes, but I didn't get a. Uh, uh, hooray, this, let's yeah. do it. I mean, the, the problem with that, of course, is, you know, and the campaign he promised to his base to simplify the income tax. The, the, the average Trump voter is not as concerned about the corporate tax. Uh, so he's, he, he, he needs to move somewhat in that direction. Um, you know, how far, I don't know. Um, he could start with the corporate tax and then Say the next on the agenda is the other, but uh, you know that was that was definitely one of his strongest pledges was to simplify uh, and uh, exempt a lot of people from the income tax by widening the bra- uh, the brackets, making three brackets. So and, and that does require you know going through the Congress. Of course, as far as the stock market's concerned, the corporate tax is more than enough <laughs> for for it to be happy. Um, and it's happy in terms of all those other factors, interest rates, the dollar, and, and Gurning's guidance, uh, you know, is, is, you know, is driving that, too. So, you know, uh, basically, um, there's nothing new on the political front that I think uh, really moves the agenda one way. There's a lot of uncertainty on how this is exactly going to be implemented, but I don't see a big downward move as a result of Comey's testimony or anything that happened in terms of getting the Trump uh, tax agenda enacted. Well, very good. Always great to get your your take on the markets. Any any final points, or just uh, have a great weekend here? Uh, I think I think we could. Um, uh, yeah, just to say that those Fang stocks, those incredible tech stocks, um, obviously they're going to have a trip up sometime because we got, as we talked about, there's definitely a lot of momentum players. Yeah. In them, uh, whether it's a news event or a disappointment on one of them or one of that, you know, uh, and then I, I do think uh, we will see a more decided move towards, uh, you know, the more traditional value with interest rates staying lower and the, uh, and the dividend yield on, on, on stocks still looking very, very good. Very good. Thanks for your comments. Thank you. We'll see you next week. Perfect. Uh, we're going to have a great show. Uh, we have two interesting guests uh, join us for the remainder of the program. Uh, the first part of the conversation, we're talking with Michael Churchill, the founder of Churchill Research. Uh, they focus on investment strategy, provide uh, independent equity research to mutual funds, hedge funds across the U.S., Canada, Europe, Australia. Uh, Mike, welcome to our program. 
Thanks. Thanks. Nice to be here. Uh, so you heard a little bit of the Professor Siegel's just introductory comments on the market. Um, I know we're going to take the conversation in a number, number of areas, but but maybe you could just reflect on what you see, you know, the state of the market environment today, how you, you know, sort of form your top-down big-picture views here. Yeah, well, actually, I thought what he said was actually quite good. I was surprised because, you know, a lot of times uh, strategists, big-picture economists get things wrong, and I think he had it... Uh, he had it quite right. This thing with the uh, uh, flattening of the curve, that's a big deal. So the 10-year yield coming down, even while they're raising rates, you know, that's an issue. That's absolutely an issue. The one thing, he was talking about the uh, weak dollar. The way I think about it is the gold price. The center of my intellectual model is gold. So if gold's going up, that is, by definition, a weakening dollar. So... To me, you know, the world's been going in a good direction since the beginning of 2016, right? Remember, we had that big panic with Fisher talking about raising four times, which was insane. And so that got spanked. And so since then, things have been going up. Um, and now what's happened lately is very interesting little divergence here. Gold going up and commodities going down. And uh, I find that interesting. Um, I think what gold may be seeing is precisely this flattening of the curve. Uh, and saying, well, wait, we can't, I mean, you know, flattening the curve is your biggest indicator that something's, something weird's going on. And what gold is smelling is this idea that they're not going to be able to raise indefinitely. Um, and, when, and so then you'll, it opens up the door to easier money. And so gold, gold is always looking further down the road than everything else. So there's two ways to think about what commodities are doing here. One is they're falling because the Fed's already too tight, uh, I don't know about that. The other one is that commodities lag gold by four, six months. And, you know, six months ago, we had the opposite situation, gold going down and commodities going up. And so you, you wash the whole thing out and it's no big deal. And so the next, and so the idea would be the commodities won't go down much further. Uh, the way I think about it, um, if you look at the uh, Morgan Stanley Emerging Markets Index, it's just been going straight up. So a flat to higher gold price means flat to lower dollar means the bar is lower for emerging market central banks to keep their currency stable against the dollar, which is what everybody cares about. So when that's happening, you know, it's like an all-clear signal to buy emerging markets. So they've been, they've been working. Um, it's been a good year for them. And the other big story is Japan, um, which I've been pounding on for the last four or five years. And uh, so, yeah, we can talk about any of those. No, so let's 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 keep on commodities for a second, and I certainly am going to come to Japan. Um, you know, on the emerging markets, they had been you know they had a huge run. Um, you go back last 15, 20 years, I mean, they had a huge run uh, going up to two thousand eleven. Two thousand eleven to the last five years after that was was terrible. Um, now we're you know last year was a good year. This year has been a good year. Uh, there's definitely divergence within the emerging markets, right. uh, some of the commodity producers versus sort of commodity importers. What do you have? And and then oil is sort of central to a lot of these stories. I mean, how do you view the variation within the emerging markets, and, and do you have a, a view on, on oil and how that relates to it all? Yeah, no, you, you nailed it. Um, so uh, EM good through 2011, well, obviously the big crash in 2008, that got undone. And so 2011 also corresponded to the peak in gold at 1900. So conceptually, if you, if you take a dogmatic view or a, I don't know, what's the word? Put, like, make gold the center of your religious yeah. philosophy around monetary policy. And you would say that taking gold from 1900 to 1100 was a monetary deflation. You don't see it in CPI because there's so much stuff in CPI and it's a lagging indicator. 
But you could make a fair argument that 1900 to 1100 that's a deflation. That's a rising real value of the dollar. And so you saw all the commodities get whacked for five years, and emerging markets are largely a commodity play, not, not exclusively. And you made an important point, which is you've got two kinds of emerging markets. You've got commodity-based emerging markets and non-commodity-based emerging markets. So they're different realities. So, for instance, you know, one of the places I've focused a lot between – I don't know, 2011 and 15 was Pakistan because they're a commodity importer and they had a bunch of other good stuff going on and nobody cared and stocks were four or five times earnings, so that was a great idea. Um, and now with oil week, uh, I, I am focusing on non... I mean, I don't know. To me, doing commodity emerging markets, it, it's a little bit of a doubling up the same theme. Yeah. It just feels a little tired. I mean, I'm more interested in the... Domestic growth stories like Sri Lanka, uh, I think, is a fascinating story. Or Turkey is a great story. Well, not a great story. It's a good story. It's an interesting story with cheap stocks. Uh, Brazil is kind of a mix because they have the commodities, but it's also, you know, there's 150, 200 million people down there. And it's, it's for the most part, it's, it's not – it's sort of a commodity story. But I think it's, the degree to which it's a commodity story is the degree to which the management of that country has been awful. And if it was any better, it wouldn't be a commodity story, if that makes sense. So, so Brazil is interesting to me too. I'm actually tempted to take a trip down there now and go stomp around and look at stuff because, mm. I mean, if it works, the the economically sensitive things like the home builders and the REITs are just going to go crazy. Uh, if it doesn't work, well, some of them will go bankrupt, but I don't think that's going to happen. Sri Lanka is a one that you just mentioned. It's not one we you hear or talk about a lot. What what's the story around Sri Lanka? Do, do you see people from the U.S. investing in Sri Lanka? I mean, and, and so how, how, what's your story there? Yeah, Sri Lanka is fascinating. I first went there when the war was still going on in 2009, and they had, you know, the, the army was patrolling the streets with guns, and, you know, one dude stopped me, and he, like, pointed his, I, I don't know what it was, some kind of rifle at my stomach for, like, five minutes so he could practice his English. And then, and then you know, he let me go. They were all friendly and everything, but it was a war. And uh, at that time, the, the infrastructure had been untouched in decades, and there were still buildings from the colonial period that nobody had done anything with. You could walk in, it was like it was 1895. Um, and now it's really hopping. I mean, you know, their goal is to become the next Malaysia, and Colombo being the next Kuala Lumpur. And every time I go there, it's shocking because it's so much more modern. And the thing about Sri Lanka is it's far and away the best place in South Asia. I mean, it, it's so much nicer than India, and it's so much nicer than Pakistan. And so, really, their their tourism business is mostly uh, Europeans who go down there in the winter and sit on the beach. Americans don't really do Sri Lanka that much because it's too long plane rides to get there. Uh, and the other thing, in, when, in the crash, I got just absolutely annihilated, just blown out completely because I didn't see it coming. But the one one thing that saved me was Sri Lanka. I had a bunch of Sri Lanka, and it didn't move. Everything else imploded before your eyes, and you couldn't figure out why it was falling as fast as it was, but Sri Lanka was not. And the reason for that was at that time, and to, some, to a large extent still today, there was no fast money there. Hedge funds didn't go there. There's no quant funds there. Most of the stocks are too small. It's like investing in the 1950s. You know, um, you, know you, you get the numbers. You look at them, you like it, you say, well, this is five and a half times earnings, good free cash flow, you know, macro story good, I think I'll buy some. You check back in six months and it's up 22%. I mean, it's, that's how it used to be. And the reason it's like that is, again, because you don't have these quants, you know, uh, dissecting everything and, and investing based off, you know, words and news releases. You're running the risk of letting people know about your story here. Well, um, 
it's a challenge. Like individuals can't really. Yeah. And you know, I I uh, my I have an institutional broker, Albert Grayson, it's an emerging markets broker, and so I do it through them. Uh, and but your average guy, you'd yeah, have to set not up to do it. account straight in. You could probably do it. You'd have to set up an account in Sri Lanka with one of those brokers. And if I got fired by my emerging markets broker, that's probably exactly what I'd do. But and then you can get the numbers off of the Sri Lankan, the Columbus Stock Exchange website. So I mean, you could do it if you wanted to. Let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Mike Churchill of Churchill Research, um, sort of talking about some off-the-beaten path uh, emerging market Sri Lanka ideas. Um, maybe let's take it back to one of the other points you started off saying, one of the, your points for the last four to five years, and this is a, a theme and, and strategy I talk a lot about as well, is Japan. Uh, maybe you could give your sense of where Japan is, what you like about Japan, uh, maybe how your narrative is, is a bit different than the rest of uh, the street who looks at it. Sure, yeah. Well, one thing about Japan is if we would have had this conversation two years ago, we could say, well, it's in the second inning. And now it's probably more like the fifth. Uh, so the story's been going for a while. Um, and you could see this coming uh, four or five years ago with the election of Abe and then his appointment of Kuroda to head the central bank. But the really key thing is that there was tremendous intellectual and political unanimity behind undoing the deflation. So Japan had been a bust for 20-plus years, right? Nobody even thought about it from 1980 to 2012. So 30 years, nobody thought about Japan at all. Because, it was, it, and it, you know, they're literally, tum well, not literally, but metaphorically, tumbleweeds blowing through the streets of Tokyo because just simply nobody cared. And you see that in the valuations of thousands of small caps there trading at five, six, seven times earnings, sometimes four. Uh, so the problem was a monetary deflation, and they undid that, and they had the support of every that you could see it coming because you had the support of all levels of the society. You know, Japan's been down the quantitative easing road before. Uh, you know, and that's where the term I think term QE comes from Japan, not from the U.S. And Bernanke uh, did it in 2009 successfully in the U.S. and allowed us to avoid the sorts of disasters that Greece, et cetera, had. Um, but J Japan has already been down this road, so they knew where to go with this, and they've been pretty successful. And so they got CPI from negative one to positive one or whatever, and their monetary base, or their M1 and M2 and M3 are growing much better than they were before. Unemployment is at its lowest level since 1995. Uh, real estate prices are going up. So um, the knocks on Japan is uh, are that uh, the companies don't make any money because it's sort of a socialist the operation within the companies, which and that is that is radically changed over the past six years. Um, I, I probably have crunched 200 stocks in Japan, model amount, whole schmear. And the one thing I've seen over and over and over and over is you have operating margins that were zero, one, or two percent in 2010, which or maybe 2008, 2009, whatever, and then started rising and are now four, five, six percent. So you take an operating margin from one and a half percent to four and a half percent, that's a triple. And you're probably going to expand to the multiple, so you're going to get a quadruple. And that's happened all over the place. Uh, so what happened was you had two or three events back-to-back -back that made the Japanese managers start worrying about making money. Uh, you had the Fukushima earthquake. You had the 2008 global crash. And you had the rise of China. And then you had the, you know, the election of uh, Abe. Uh, basically, the, it was a sort of a and, – and then the other thing you had was the rollover in fertility and, the, and the, the prospect of a dying population and a collapsing culture. And people look at it and say, hey, we can't beat this. We can't do this anymore. You know, and you look at the numbers of like young people in relationships, young people having sex with anyone. It's like 
like unbelievably low numbers. It's a dying civilization. But that's starting to change too. I mean, I don't know if you know our our, our uh, the COO CEO of our Japan group, Jesper Cole, who's been at one of the leading re- research figures over there for you know three decades. But he's all about this local economic story that how the the dearth of young people is pushing up wage pressures at the young end, while the old people are rolling off. So you sort of had this nice balance of the high salary people retiring. You got young people with wage pressures. You get positive labor dynamics. You've got those people then getting more full time jobs when they're only getting part time jobs. So it's leading to better credit, better growth in in the financing side. So then they are starting to get married and getting, you know, eventually you're going to start to see more kids because now people get full-time jobs. So it's sort of an interesting dynamic. And you're talking about the profitability focus that they are starting to focus on returns and capital. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, what, what do you think from the valuation side? I mean, how do you think Japan stacks up versus other opportunities today there? Well... Um, again, this is where this idea of it being the fifth inning versus the first or second, especially now there's a lot of seasonality in Japan. And we, you know, um, it's, a, uh, it's a classic sell in May and go away market. But during bull markets, it's not as intense as bear markets. So in bear markets, in the summer and fall, you get wiped out. And, but in bull markets, not much happens. So as we speak, a lot of these Japanese stocks have run quite a bit. Um, so just not as cheap as it was unless, but that's because, you know, in my models, I'm like, well, my target for this thing is eight and a half times to fiscal 2019, which is effectively calendar 2018. Well, why is it eight and a half times when the, you know, the, the 10 year Japanese bond yields like 0.5. So you got a 12 and a half percent, 12 percent earnings yield versus 0.5 on the treasury. Why shouldn't the target PE be 30? You know, it's just, it's like inertia. I'm so used to paying five times earnings for these things that eight times seems gigantic. But now you have a lot of these names in construction, home building, and building materials and so forth, and machinery that used to be five or six times and are now, in fact, eight times. So the question is, what does eight times mean? And I, I wrestle with that. I, I don't really know. Um, yeah, yeah, when you say 0.5, it's not like 0.5, uh, 50 basis points. It's, it, it's five basis points when the 10-year here is 220. They're literally at zero. Um, and so you say, what is if you have a zero cost of capital in, in a lot of these things, or negative at the shorter end, um, it is an interesting way of, of looking at it. if they actually do have this more positive inflection on, on growth dynamics than they're giving credit for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So it's it's a real challenge in thinking about how to value things. But there's there's a couple things going on in Japan, and that is, I don't, you know, most of your listeners probably aren't this deep into it. But if you really get into the weeds on these things, what happens is they will give you numerical guidance for top line, for operating income, and for earnings every year, and they update it as the year goes along. No other country does that. And it's very helpful because they report in Japanese, and, you know, the whole thing is so obfuscatory that in terms of the way they talk about what they're doing. And even when you go out there to talk to them, half the time they don't tell you anything useful. Uh, but the point is, um, what they'll do is sandbag. You know, it's a poker term, sandbagging, like when you have a pair of aces and you bet like you have a two and a four. Uh, that's what they do on their guidance. So they say they're going to make 120 in, but as the year goes along, you're through three quarters, they've already made 105, and their fourth quarter tends to be the best. So you know they're going to make 160, right? And then they come out, and they say they made 160, and the stock goes up 11%. This happens over and over and over. You can see it coming a mile away. So it's that kind of just radical inefficiency in the valuation of the stocks. It tells you it's just such a Again, it's a market that's nobody looked at in 35 years. Yeah, and thir- Nikkei, Nikkei 39,989 bottomed out around 8,000 before it you know started coming back, and so today we're uh, what in the 18 to 19,000. Don't know the exact number here. Uh, just pulling it up. 
um, around 20,000. So we got, we got back up to 20,000. So it's still half of where it was in 1989. Um, I mean, what's, you, you, do you think, it, you think you could keep going for a little bit? Fifth, well, you fifth know, inning. I don't think I own anything in the Nikkei, actually. It's, it's I mean, more small caps. There's 3,000 stocks or whatever in Japan, but actually probably closer to 4,500. And um, most of the stocks I cover, there's simply no other analysts on. Like, I'll have an estimate on Bloomberg. I'll, have the, I'll be the only guy with an estimate. Uh, just because it's, you know, this, this is another reality of the world, um, which is that compared to 40 years ago, so much more money is professionally managed. I think... Like 40 years ago, let's say 50% of money was professionally managed. Now it's 70%. So the whole uh, you know, audience for small cap stocks, it's just gone. You know? and, and macro policy has gotten so convoluted all over the world that your average guy simply doesn't have any confidence he can figure out what's going on. And that, you know, it's a legitimate beef because, I mean, the Fed, the way they talk about what's happening is so shot through with lies uh, relative to what is really happening. Um, but lies is a strong word, but yeah. obfuscation is a better word. Um, that the average guy, everything they learn about economics is, is, is got fundamental holes right in the middle of it. And so I'm very thankful that I learned economics from Jude Winiski at Polyeconomics 20, 25 years ago uh, and learned the right way to do it. Well, let, let me take the conversation one 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 area that I know you said you've got a, a new book coming and you sort of talked about the financial crisis, the crash of 08 and 09, which you alluded to in how Sri Lanka helped you avoid that. But maybe you could just preview for our listeners your book and any of the other lessons you, you thought that was worth highlighting from that 2008-2009 crash. Yeah, sure. Uh, so the book is called Stock Analyst Trip Notes 2008 to 17 crash and recovery from Buenos Aires to Hanoi. So what it does is trace, you know, like I said, I got smashed in 2008. I really didn't see it coming. One of my trip notes in the early chapters is a trip I took to Brazil that summer. And I'm like, well, I can't find anything to buy. Everything's expensive. But I didn't see any crash coming. You know, my model was just, I didn't take interest rates seriously enough going into the crash. And so I just, and I've got a chapter in there called Doom, which is my experience sitting here in Virginia just getting smoked night after night, week after week, month after month. I had two portfolios. One of them was down 87%, and the other one was down, like, I don't know, 50 uh, It was just unbelievable. I mean, it was 1929. You know, that's 2008 was absolutely a repeat of 1929 uh, as far as the dynamics. The only reason we didn't end up with the Depression was because Bernanke understood the Depression and knew what to do, which is flood the system with money. They didn't do that in Greece and Spain because they were hooked into the euro, and so they ended up with our 1930s again. Anyway, what happened was in, right after the crash, you could pick up income statements and look at them, but they were just nonsense because nothing, nothing on the ground had anything to do with what third quarter statements were showing. So I started getting on planes and going places, and uh, one of my first trips was, in fact, Brazil, where I bought uh, water and sewage utilities because they were trading at four or four and a half times earnings. And, uh, you know, people, what they told me is, like, look, people cancel their cell phone before they'll cancel their sewage, which makes sense. And so that's the kind, and I just kept grinding it out country after country, you know, buying stuff at four times earnings, five times earnings, 30% a book. And then you could buy these bond funds, these emerging market bond funds at 30% discounts to NAV, which was nonsense, right? You could just buy it and liquidate the whole fund and walk away with 30% profit. So, you know, it took me three years, but I, 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 I got it all back. Uh, and that's when I really started traveling a lot. Uh, and so the book goes through trip by trip, you know, in real time, because I wrote up all these trip notes at the time. So, uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's 
Sri Lanka, it's Japan, Turkey, Brazil, uh, some European places, Indonesia a couple times, Pakistan, a couple of really interesting Pakistan trips, China, Russia, Ukraine, all kinds of cool stuff. And so you can read it at several levels. You can read it as, you know, how to kind of a Jim Cramer, not Cramer, who's the guy? Jim Rogers. Jim Rogers, the yeah. biker, yeah. It's sort of like that, but it's more it's more technical in the sense of this isn't me riding around on a motorcycle. This is me in a suit going to meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting. And then also walking around the city and taking pictures and looking at stuff, you know, either people sleeping on the streets or, you know, like in rural Peru, there's there's some city down in southern Peru that's just like a boom town. I mean, just buildings going up everywhere. And then, you know, you look at the shape of people's foreheads and you can see people getting healthier and smarter in places like Peru and Pakistan. And you can see people getting, you know, less healthy and, uh, and dumber in, for instance, you know, rural America. Uh, and so it's... And so the world changes, you know, power shifts around. Uh, like, for instance, in Buenos Aires, I used to live there in 98, 99, and it was beautiful then, and the people were beautiful, and the food was beautiful. It was fabulous. And then they screwed that place up so badly. I came back 15 years later, it just looked like a dump. There had been not one nickel of new CapEx in Buenos Aires. Uh, the people looked awful. They were fat. Their clothes weren't good. You know, the women had tattoos. It was terrible. Uh, and so that's what. And meanwhile, I went over to Lima, which in the mid '90s I went to. And you could, looking down from the plane as you're coming in, you could see burning trash barrels. And now you walk around Lima, and parts of Lima look just like like Southern California at the beach in the yep. '50s. So uh, you know, it's just amazing the way the world changes. And then every time, year after year, I'd come back, I'd fly into Dulles, and I'd just get out and just be a dump, you know. And I'd be like, man. We are going backwards, and the rest of the world is going forward. It's interesting. So let's one give maybe one final comment, uh, and just we'll let people know when that book's coming out. So Stock Analyst Trip Notes 2008-2017, The Crash and Recovery from Buenos Aires to Hanoi. When do you think the book's going to be released? Uh, well, let's see. It's uh, it's in the process right now, so it should be up on Amazon within the next few days. Very nice. Uh, and um, you know, there's going to be a link on the website, churchillresearch.com. Very good. And, and so who, and, and just as one final commentary or maybe sort of closing comments, so it's sort of interesting that, of commentary on the U.S. versus some of the rest of the world on, on these trips. Any other big picture closing thoughts, people who should be looking for your research uh, and sort of closing thoughts there? Um, closing thoughts. Uh, I, it, it's, you know, it's still a pretty good world. I'm, as your professor said earlier, I'm a little worried about these high-flying NASDAQ stocks. I've modeled out Tesla. I've modeled out Netflix. They just look utterly insane to me. I could be wrong. I've been wrong so far. That's a worry. But, you know, there's a lot of people in the world. There's good stuff going on. You can, if you just get out and do it yourself and go, go to these emerging markets, you can find stuff and just be value-oriented. Go for the free cash flow. I've just become... My implosions on mining and so forth have made me an absolute free cash flow fanatic. And that's what lets you sleep at night. Well, very good. Mike Chotrill of Churchill Research, thanks for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. We'll be back after a short break talking with Sal Bruno. Welcome back to Behind the Markets. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, and now I'd like to welcome Salvatore Bruno to our program. Sal is the Chief Investment Officer at Index IQ, a firm recently acquired by Mainstay Investments. Sal joined Index IQ in 2007 from Deutsch Asset Management, where he was uh, held a number of senior positions, uh, including uh, a portfolio manager for a U.S. large-cap core equity mutual fund. Sal, welcome to our program. 
Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Uh, Interesting um, background from going from Deutsch uh, as a large cap core portfolio manager towards the ETF industry. Uh, maybe uh, just a brief, uh, maybe you could recount how, sort of how you found that transition. Uh, if you want to comment on the whole uh, active-passive discussion, and you know, a lot of people say there's all this flow is going to ETFs. The active, is it, you know, where is that going? Maybe just sort of comment on, on your vantage point, having been a portfolio manager, now sort of leading an ETF effort. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about your, your, your background there and, and your thoughts on that. Yes, I think the flows that we're seeing now is something that I kind of thought would happen over time when I made the transition to move out of the mutual fund uh, business into the ETF business. So having been a portfolio manager on a mutual fund, you kind of saw how the mutual fund operated. And we started to see, and this was 2006, 2007, you know, the first ETF came out in 1993. So it was maybe, you know, 13 or 14 years in. And we started to see ETFs picking up a little bit of momentum. And when you looked under the hood a little bit, you kind of saw that there were some really attractive things about ETFs relative to mutual funds. And this is before you started to see the major underperformance that we've seen for active mutual funds. But just some of the structural um, differences between ETFs and mutual funds. So things like you know, uh, tax efficiency that, that comes out of the in-kind creation redemption process that makes ETFs uh, generally more tax efficient than mutual funds. Um, generally, there are lower administrative costs. So you see lower expense ratios on ETFs versus mutual funds, which, again, is a structural advantage. Um, full transparency, uh, so you know what the ETF holds on a daily basis um, versus having to wait for quarterly reporting coming out of, out of the mutual fund complexes. And then finally, intraday liquidity. So when I started to see those structural advantages, I thought, you know, there might be an interesting opportunity there for uh, ETFs to start to take some market share versus mutual funds. So when I had the opportunity to join up with Index IQ, um, I was really fascinated by their focus primarily on the ETF marketplace, but also on their focus on liquid alternatives, because I also thought hedge funds and alternative instruments were a really interesting uh, part of the marketplace and could play a big role, and, and certainly they did. I did not know that they would play such an important role in the financial crash that would come you know, 18 months later in 2008. But we kind of saw what hedge funds did in the 2000 to 2002 technology crash and how they provided some of the downside protection. And, and then the, so you put that all together, what really attracted me to not only the ETF industry, but also Index IQ more specifically, was kind of the, that intersection of working on liquid alternative investments, uh, delivering them through the ETF wrapper. And I thought that could actually really be a a really cool intersection and a potential growth area. Um, And it it has turned out, you know, very well for us. So it was something that, um, you know, looking back was kind of a a great career choice at that point in time. Yeah. So it is interesting. I I think where we are, I think where ETF started, they all started as sort of 1.0 pure beta. Everything started mark cap weight indexing. You know, when, when Wisdom Tree came in in 2006, we were sort of one of the early firms in doing non-cap weighting, rebalancing to factors, but still basically plain vanilla equities. I mean, it is interesting. Where where Would you say we've even stepped up to bat in the liquid alternatives inning for, for ETFs? I mean, where how, maybe comment on that segment and sort of how you guys have, have carved out your, your role there. Yes, yeah, so I think it really depends on how broadly you want to define alternatives. I know your prior guest was talking a lot about gold, and certainly many people think of gold as, a, as an alternative investment or commodities more, more generally. Um, when I'm thinking about uh, alternative investments, I'm thinking more specifically on hedge fund-type strategies. So, uh, you know, you sort of hedge fund-to-fund type instrument, merger arbitrage, um, you know, long-short equity, things of that nature. And if you look at where the flows are and, and the size of the market, it's still relatively small, compared to where I think it actually could be. 
Um, we've seen a number of entrants come in and, and start to do uh, liquid alternatives, not only in the ETF space, and the mutual fund space as well. And they've had, had some success um, in terms of attracting assets. But I think that um, if you look at what alternatives did and liquid alternatives did kind of in the 2008 financial crisis, um, the ones that were available at that time, they actually performed pretty well in protecting on the downside. You know, we had the SP down about 50%. Hedge funds more generally were down about 20, and some of the liquid instruments were down about 10%. So significant downside participation. I think, you know, as people, if we do start to get a situation where maybe the equity markets get a little frothy, um, we have valuations at high levels, um, I know the you know, earnings um, outlook is, is still pretty benign, and, uh, and we have very low interest rates, so that's all, that all is positive. But with that high valuation ratio, you do worry at some point if there's something in the off uh, in the off months or years, that might cause a little bit of an event. And I think in situations like that, alternatives will prove their value and will prove their merit again. So I do think we're still in the early stages, and we can see more significant asset flow to come. So we're in, w- within that subcategory, is there an area you're the most excited about? Do you think that people should be studying closer? I mean, I, I think that's a pretty conventional narrative that markets are high, and you should think about alternatives, but nobody knows really where they should go within that alternatives category. Right. So, you know, you can do things like sort of general um, hedge funds, just kind of a broad, diversified, multi-strategy fund of funds and kind of pick up across a number of different strategies, whether it be a global macro, um, a long, short, and event-driven, things like that. Um, more specifically, more narrowly, one area that we're seeing a lot of interest in right now is in merger arbitrage, which we have seen a big pickup over the last, call it four years, in the uh, deal flow on a global basis, not only number of deals, but also dollar value of deals. We've seen some really large deals coming through the pipeline um, that have actually worked out fairly well. This administration um, so far seems to be somewhat accommodative to allowing some of these um, these transactions to move forward. Um, so we think that, and we've seen pretty good returns coming out of that space with very low levels of volatility and very low correlations to the equity market. So you're looking at something with a, a beta, which is sort of a systematic exposure to the market, of somewhere in maybe the 0.15 range, which is actually really attractive from a diversification standpoint. And so that's one of the areas very specifically that we're having a lot of conversations with clients about is, is how do I get exposure to merger arbitrage in this liquid uh, type of vehicle? Yeah, I'm, I'm pulling up the IQR merger total return index. Um, and, you know, looking back, uh, at least on Bloomberg, I see about five years, you may have it I'm sure you have it back longer, but so on the last five years, uh, looked about five percent return. Um, what's your sense of you know if the S and P does nine to ten over the long run? You could say maybe that's not going to be the case going forward, but uh, 0.15 beta, you're not expecting just a one percent return. What do you think is your long-term return expectations on a merger arb type strategy? We think it'll be somewhere in kind of the mid-single digits, kind of somewhere in the four to six percent, maybe five, maybe four, maybe some years a little bit lower. Yeah. Um, and then the important part of that is the beta, which encompasses not only the low correlation to the equity market, um, but also the, its own standard deviation, which tends to be fairly low, say three or four percent. So, and we saw in the in the middle of March, I'm sorry, middle of May, um, you know, the S and P dropped almost two percent. Small caps are down about three percent on one single day. That day, the index that you're referencing was actually up about 10 basis points. So it's those type of events. We also can go back to the beginning of 2016 during uh, the, the first five or six weeks of the year. The S&P was under a lot of pressure. Oil prices were low. was taking down high-yield bonds. So there was a lot of widespread um, negativity in the marketplace. The S&P was down about 10%, if you recall, back through February 11th 
of 2016. And during that time period, the index you mentioned was up about 2%. So it's those type of time periods where it really proves its, its worth and its merit to try to add to a portfolio. Yeah, I think that is like a great place where ETFs come to the market. It gives you very broad diversification on, on a type of investment strategy. I think that is really what the industry was made for in, in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that you probably will see that more in, in more alternative strategies. I know I focus on that. I'm sure your your team's focused on that. On the broad hedge fund replication strategy, I mean, one criti- criticism you could say is that, well, these are just asset allocation strategies that are sort of combining various ETFs in you know, some way to try to get it tracking to the hedge fund composite. I mean, any any reflection to that comment? Well, what I would say is if you look at what I think uh, hedge funds are actually really good at is actually asset allocation. Um, so it's not so much, you know, timing trades on an individual basis, but just sort of picking up on longer-term trends and picking up that, you know, now's a time period where growth has outperformed value, for example, maybe as a stylistic bet in, in say, a long-short strategy, and kind of riding that for, to, for a while. And that, those trends tend to persist some, for some time. And we think that hedge funds are actually pretty good at identifying those types of trends, whether they be stylistic trends, whether they be asset allocation trends across different asset classes, maybe across different geographies. So what we've seen is that's actually a very effective way to try to replicate their return par- pattern is primarily by doing asset allocation. So I think, you know, kind of summarize, mm-hmm. that is what they're good at. And I think we've um, kind of been able to show through our research and live performance that we are able to kind of mimic their asset allocation to try to deliver sort of that return pattern. Very good. We're talking with Sal Bruno, uh, this, the CEO of Index IQ, uh, now a part of Mainstay Investments. Um, so we talked a little bit about alternatives here, both merger art, broad asset allocation, hedge fund replication. Um, maybe let's talk about some of the things you're doing beyond that. I mean, so one of the things where you know, I started as where ETF started was just you know beta 1.0 of, of the market. Um, you know, one of the questions people ask is, is are they going to bring these new factors to fixed income? I think something you know both of us have focused on. Um, maybe talk a little bit about how Index IQ has thought about, you know, how they, to bring factors to the fixed income market. Yeah, so if you kind of look at the, the, the evolution of how these types of things come about, you know, equities really started with factor-based investing. If you go back to the 1960s and Bill Sharp coming out with the CAPM, really that was the first, that was the first uh, factor was the market and beta to the market. You know, that, that, and that carried the day for quite a while. Um, you had the first index come out in the 1970s, uh, and then you had sort of Farmer French doing their work on size versus um, versus style, and and showing the the, merit, the relative merits of small cap and value investing as, as long term factors. Now, in the early 90s, first ETF for equities comes out in 93, and then you started to see some of these stylistic uh, or factor based, if you will, factors come out or ETFs come out for the equities. You know, fixed income started much later, um, not only from a, a research standpoint but also from an ETF standpoint. So the first fixed income ETFs didn't come out until probably 10 years or so until after the equity um, uh, ETFs came out. And so it's not surprising that given that the fixed income research has been a little bit later and they've been a little bit um, further behind in terms of the initial development of ETFs, that we've seen that it's taken a little bit longer for fixed income factors to come out. Um, The first real equity ones that gathered a lot of momentum, a lot of steam, if you will, besides kind of the value and growth was really the low vol that came out maybe five years ago. Um, and we're starting to see some of that work its way into the fixed income world, as you mentioned. And so we're seeing more academic research kind of documenting that some of these equity factors that people have, have used for, for periods of time 
can actually work in the fixed income world. So, for example, momentum is something that's been used not only in equities, but it's been used in commodities and currencies, managed futures for, for literally decades. Um, and so we're starting to see some research come out more recently and, and product development work around using momentum in the fixed income world. Now, one of the caveats to doing all that is there's not necessarily a straightforward translation of how to implement that factor in the fixed income world relative to how you did it in the equity world. So uh, for equities, you know, there's a lot of momentum factors or a lot of momentum ETFs that will actually do individual stocks because they're fairly liquid. You know, if you have the right universe, you can actually trade at the stock level. It's a little bit more difficult on the fixed income side because the bonds don't trade nearly as much as the equities do. This is not quite as much liquidity. So you have to be really careful when you're doing your research to take into consideration, well, what would this actually cost me to implement a strategy like this? And are there other ways to implement it where I can capture still the essence of what momentum is trying to deliver, but not be, not be hung up on, on those excessive transaction costs? So, for example, one of the things that we've done is to, to try to apply momentum and fixed income, but instead of going down to individual bonds, we actually do it kind of at the sector level within the aggregate bond universe. So we implement using other ETFs to get those sector exposures. So, for example, we'll use ETFs from, from Wisdom Tree and other competitors that are out there to try to get exposure, maybe to different parts of the yield curve or broad investment-grade corporate bonds, and then use momentum to, to make those calls, whether you want to be overweight the short end of the curve and underweight the long end of the curve, vice versa. Maybe there's a time to play credit. Maybe there's a time when credit's getting expensive. There's information embedded in the movement of those sector indices, and we're using momentum the signals to kind of capture that information and tilt the portfolio accordingly. Well, that, that is interesting, I, and I appreciate thinking about Wisdom Tree there. <laughs> um, the the um, it, talking about trading fixed income ETFs, I mean, I, I talked to a number of people. I'm sure you do too, who say, "Well, these high yield bond strategies ETFs um, are really dangerous. They're bringing in people who wouldn't trade high yield bonds." Um, and that's sort of like one of the attacks on ETFs on it's sort of this fixed income that the underlying isn't that liquid, as we talked about. That one of the reasons why you're doing allocation or sort of rotation among the styles and not just trading the individual bonds. Do you worry about the the high yield bond ETFs themselves or liquidity there, or just any comment on the liquidity of the fixed income markets there? Yeah, so you have to be obviously really careful about that. And so when we came out with our high yield um, ETF. You know, we, we, the first thing we did was work with an established index provider. So we're working with S and P, who's uh, has done you know sort of low volatility in, in different in different parts of the world. They have one of the, the leading low volatility equity uh, indices. So we, we commissioned them to work with us on creating a low volatility, high yield index. And the, one of the first things we talked about was liquidity. Now we have one of the benefits of being part of New York Life and Mainstay that we're in a multi boutique structure, and so. We can tap the, the investment expertise across some of the other boutiques that exist within uh, Mainstay in New York Life. So we work, uh, one of our sister boutiques is Mackay Shields, who has a long history of managing fixed income funds. Uh, they have almost $100 billion in assets, so, and they're very active. So they, they know, they manage these funds on a daily basis. They know how to source liquidity. They know generally how to set parameters that improve the liquidity profile of the base index. So we work pretty closely with them on trying to come up with some parameters to say to make sure we're getting the most liquid bonds in the universe. By the way, we also use them to manage the portfolio because when it comes time to sourcing the bonds, you need to know where, where, who's holding them and how to get at that, how to unearth that liquidity. Um, so we're fortunate to have worked with them. And one important thing we did, so we apply these, these 
limitate these screens, if you will, on you know maximum age, on, on minimum amount outstanding to make sure that these are some of the most liquid bonds in the universe. Another thing we've done um, to improve kind of the liquidity and, and also on the tracking of the fund to the index is, is try to take into account that bid-ask spread that you experience when you're trading these things, right? So we all know when you trade a stock, a bond as well, you know, somebody will offer to buy from you at a low price and will sell from you, will sell to you at a high price. And of course, they're making money on that spread. The way that S&P is actually implementing the index is to incorporate that into the index. So on rebalances, when new bonds are coming into the index, they're going in at the higher price, assuming that we're going to pay that higher price on implementation. And when bonds are removed from the index, they're coming out at the lower price, the bid price, assuming you're going to receive that on the sale. These are some of the ways we try to make the index not only very liquid, but also very realistic from an implementation standpoint. Yeah, no, it's, it is interesting to be able to think that, hey, everybody's been doing factors and equities. Factors are coming basically everywhere you think about it. Um, and sort of as you started that when you think about how active managers have run their portfolios, a lot of them run these types of screens already, and then they sort of apply some subjective judgment. So let's just remove that subjectivity, look at just the screens, so whether it's volatility here and high yield, whether it's fundamental quality screens, things that we've looked at, um, you know, momentum that you're doing. It's really the same exact conversation you're having for equities, just applied towards fixed income. It's a, it's a really interesting place yeah. where the industry's going. Absolutely. And it's to take the conversation kind of full circle, going back to, you know, when I was a portfolio manager uh, on a mutual fund for Deutsche, we had a quantitative process. We, have a, we had a quantitative model and we had, uh, we, we, we basically ran a quantitative optimization approach. And we, we kind of applied that process kind of in a research setting. And it was interesting. What we had found was the inputs actually were quite valuable, right? And you could actually, you can create alpha from those inputs and from that process. What we found people getting tripped up was on some of those subjective decisions, and a lot of that was driven by emotion. Yeah. Um, and people making the wrong decisions, sort of knee-jerk reaction to what's going on at a particular point in time. And so that kind of was in the back of my mind as I made the transition over to index IQ and ETFs and index-based methodologies that, you know, if the inputs are good, if we could remove the negative drag from subjectivity and the emotional response, we thought that that, I thought that could actually be a really positive thing. So it's sort of exactly what you're saying, that... You know, a lot of these managers, a lot of the tools and factors are things that managers use. You know, if you take, for example, our high-yield um, bond ETF that we just came out with, the, the risk metric that we're using, you know, it's been around for 10 years or so. It's, it has some nice academic backing. Um, fixed income managers use it as one of their risk metrics. Um, we just basically took that and said, okay, let's, let's just systematize this and let's just select bonds that meet certain criteria, they're in the lowest 50% of the risk profile based on you know, current market metrics, things like spread um, and duration, spread duration. Yeah, no, I think this is uh, it's great stuff going in, in this direction. Um, maybe you know one topic we haven't gotten to, uh, I know one thing we're also both focused on is the international markets and, and how people get exposure there. Um, you know, we've, uh, and we're in our final two, three minutes of the program too, so we have to you know, just be cognizant of the time. Um, any thoughts on, on what, how you see you know, the, that dollar market, um, how people approach currencies? I mean, dollar has had gone up a lot over the previous four or five years. Now we're having a, a little bit of pullback, uh, dollar weakness in the beginning part of 2017. But how do you think about currencies uh, as applied to international markets? Yeah, so currencies, I, we think, are a very important part, and I think you share that view as well. It's funny because you, your previous guest, Mike, was talking about Japan and the quantitative easing going on there, and what that caused was a negative correlation between the equity market in Japan and the Japanese yen. So what we mean by that is as the, as the 
uh, as the local equity market in Japan, as the Nikkei went up, the yen actually got weaker because of the quantitative easing. It made the, the yen less valuable, right? So you ran the risk that you may have made money in a local market, but if you're a U.S.-based investor, you could have given back pretty much all of that um, just by your exposure to the yen if you're based in U.S. dollars. So we think that hedging is an important consideration for investors, and we see a lot of research over time. Hedging doesn't matter, and you know you end up sort of at the same place, but over shorter periods of time, which is probably closer to the actual realistic holding horizon of most investors, we think the currency can matter. And so there, we think that people ought to incorporate that, um, whether through a dynamic hedging strategy or through a fixed hedge, you know, 50%. That's what we've come out with. That we said we think 50% is a reasonable target. Um, you know, there may be opportunities. Sometimes you're right. Sometimes maybe not as right in terms of moving around that. But we do think people should consider it. So we came out with, you know, sort of the default if you don't have a view on the currency, you probably should be at least half hedged. Yeah. You're not getting, you're not making a huge bet on the dollar, but you're not making a huge bet on the foreign currency. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely aligned on that point of view. I mean, for my papers, we've written on this over the last six, seven years, and I always called the 50-50 the regret minimization portfolio that you don't know in hindsight. I mean, it's hard to look ahead and say what's going to happen, but it's obviously easy to look backwards and say what happened, and 50-50 minimizes your regret of, of being on the wrong side of it. Yeah, absolutely. We call it the hedge of least regret, so just another play on words similar to what you're saying. Yeah, there you go. Well, Sal Bruno, uh, CIO of Index IQ, uh, it's been a great conversation. Thanks for, for joining us on the program today. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Appreciate it. Uh, you've been listening to Behind the Markets here on Sirius XM 111. We had a great conversation with Michael Churchill of Churchill Research. Look for his new book on on his trips around the world, his research notes around the world. Uh, thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Daniel Bruno. You can listen to us on every week uh, here on Sirius XM 111, but also our Behind the Markets podcast. Uh, thanks again to Sal Bruno of Index IQ. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.